Hi there, and welcome to Out of Office. My name's Johnny Caldor, and this is a podcast where I usually get to take a walk with interesting people in media and try and find out what makes them tick. Uh, sadly, right now, nobody's taking walks with anyone, and so we're going to do this one over a video conference. But the good news is we're still out of office, and I think we're still going to have a good chat. My guest this week is Alison Dolan. Alison is the Chief Strategy Officer at News UK, part of News Corporation. And prior to that, she was at Sky for 15 years in the treasury function and then running the B2B part of the business. Uh, so she's been in media for many years now. She's been in the Murdoch fold for most of them. And her job at the moment is particularly interesting because part of her role is managing the relationship with the big tech platforms for News UK. She brokered the deal, as you'll hear about uh, in the conversation that we have, with Apple to get the Times of London onto Apple News Plus. And she's now responsible for all commercial relationships with Apple and Facebook and Google and the rest. So, you know, really interesting part of the business that she's running. Anyway, I'm going to hand over to Alison now, who is sitting in her home in Richmond while I was sitting at my home here in North London. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Okay, so here we are. Hello. Hi. So we're not in a park, which is a shame. So the whole idea was we were going to go for a walk together. I know, but if we went to Richmond Park now, we would be policed to the fact that we were two metres apart. We would definitely, because we don't look like we're part of the same household, we would definitely get told off. But yeah, here we are. At least we're out of the office, which is the whole, it's the brief, right, for our for our chat is to get out of the office and have a chat about stuff. So we've, we've fulfilled the brief partly. We've fulfilled the brief, haven't we? So I'm going to start with, um, I think, well, well, let's start with News UK and just like the transition from your role at Sky to turning up at News UK. It'd be good just to start there, I think, right? And how that felt and, and what was the role you took on and then how was that transition to what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, it's coming up for three and a half, four years now, Um and transitioning out of Sky, well, transitioning out of Sky happened by degrees because I had been, uh, I had been the deputy MD of Sky Business, which was the B two B side of Sky. So anytime you see Sky in a pub or a hotel, you know it's run by a separate team within Sky, who handles the the commercial customers. And so I went from you know having loads of pub customers and hotel customers to. Um, having a chat with our CEO to, to ask to do something slightly different. And he said that Rebecca at News UK had been in touch because they had just bought a wireless business and she was looking for some inputs on, to, on uh, how to integrate it and you know how, how they could go from being an, an effectively a news platform to a more multimedia platform across all the digital sites and now radio. And should we add a bit of TV to that and how could that look? And did I want to go over there for a few months and, and work with Rebecca? So I thought, sure, this is going to be phenomenally interesting. But I think deep down, I was expecting Sky and News UK to be pretty similar. You know, they were both news core companies. You know, Rupert had been involved with both of them pretty heavily. We had had James Murdoch as CEO at Sky for a number of years. And then he had gone to News UK. And so we really felt a deep link. But the reality of how similar they are <laughs> was something I wasn't expecting at all. And as companies, 
they couldn't be more different, really. And of course, in terms of the sectors in which they operate, you know, pay TV has grown at a phenomenal rate, driven largely by Sky and its investment in sport and in entertainment programming. Whereas, you know, the news sector was trying to get to grips with a transition from print to digital and how that looked and the challenging economics of digital subscriptions and digital advertising. And also, I think the bit that I was probably least prepared for was just the deep historical roots of the news media business, which, of course, we hadn't had at Sky. You know, we built that business up and managed to kind of, you know, Rupert single-handedly change the television landscape of the UK. But the, the roots in newspapers go very, very deep. And the old rivalries and the editorial rivalries and the management rivalries were both something I was unprepared for and knew nothing about. You know, so I was constantly putting my foot in it by suggesting that we work with, you know, X at Y title, <laughs> only to be told that, you know, we don't speak to them <laughs> and we don't really work with other newspapers. And, and so that, I think, Thing took a lot of getting used to for me, as did working in a sector that, you know, was all about where's the next revenue stream coming from? What new tech can we introduce that will create another revenue stream for us? And we had done plenty of that to one which had to consider just as much how you protect your existing revenues and you know, really think hard about what what products you can develop from an audience that loves you and trusts you, but which is shrinking and aging. And you've been there three and a bit years now. Yeah, about three and a half, I guess. And how's the role changed since you got there? Yeah, so the role that I came in to do was very focused on integrating wireless and how we maximise the investment that News UK had put into this radio business. And I think part of the early challenges there were training a company that had only ever been about newspapers, how to make best use of these great radio stations that they had bought. And, and, that, and that took a while. But now it truly is a, a properly multi-platform business. And there's so much interaction between the titles and the radio stations and talent sharing and just, you know, the publicity that goes between the newspapers and the radio stations. But yeah, about six months ago, I guess my role was it was started to focus far more on the relationship with the tech platforms and how we help to address some of the you know I I would yeah I, I mean I I use the word dysfunctional it, certainly it's an imbalance in input and output between news content and the platforms we focus probably on Google more than the others I think quite rightly because there's such a large contribution made by news titles to the Google ecosystem, to search in particular. You know, when people search for almost anything, some element of content that has been published by news newspapers and their digital sites will appear against that in search. And and yet the money that is returned to publishers as a result of that is is not what it should be. And particularly in the times that we're in now, as more and more kind of worried people turn to Google to look for information, increasingly our content, because it's verified and it's fact-checked and it's, and it's trustworthy, is appearing against some of those searches. And so we have in the last couple of weeks really tried to actually work together as a sector 
you know, almost in an unprecedented way to make our case to Google to to change the economics and change the way that things work on an advertising level, to suspend publisher fees, to increase the share of advertising revenue that publishers take. So let's see what comes of that. But I think, you know, those platforms and and Facebook, I think, have slightly got ahead of this curve and they have they have made financial commitments to spending, you know, specific amounts of money with publishers. But Google have been very silent in all of this. And I really do fault them for that because they continue to drive people to the Google search ecosystem, partly fueled by the content that we put out at great expense to us, you know, and I'm not just talking about News UK. I mean, it's news publishers all over the world. And the coronavirus has presented a particular challenge because a lot of brands have chosen not to advertise against this content. Yes, I've been seeing that. So, you know, more people than ever before are coming to our titles to look for information and yet, and and so in terms of audience numbers, we're seeing a huge uplift, but the money isn't following it. And Google have been a big influence and facilitator in all of this. So, you know, they really do need to step up and help out here. So we're waiting over the next few days to see what comes of that. Do you think, I mean, so whatever sort of deal you do or the industry does with Google now, I mean, is that going to stick though? Is this Is this setting a precedent for the future? I mean, I would love to think that whatever measures they're prepared to take in a crisis ultimately would be a bit more durable. But they certainly need, I think, to step up and support publishers during the lockdown when, you know, people are not able to get out and physically buy papers and consumer behavior is really changing and they are benefiting from this and and they need to support us. Um, because because the the relationship the financial relationship between platforms and publishers heading into this crisis was very imbalanced, and we would certainly ask them to change that. And what about Apple? I mean, we obviously there was big news with Apple News Plus launching. Um, gosh, last year now, yeah. it's kind of been a while now, and you you were kind of anchor tenants in Apple News Plus in the UK. Yeah, can you talk at all about kind of how that's been yeah, we're quite yeah, a few months in now well we just we just marked the six month anniversary of our participation in it and you know certainly there was nervousness on our part going in you know what would it do to our direct subscriber base as the time i should say that it's only the the, the times that is in apple news plus um but the times is you know a very prestigious part of our stable and it's one where we have a you know, a strong and growing digital subscriber base. And we were worried about cannibalization of that base. And we were worried about training people to read our content outside of our own apps and outside of our own websites. And what might that do? I think the reality has been very different in that the audience that has come to us in Apple News is is an almost entirely new I think there's something like a 0.03% overlap between our existing subs and our audience in Apple. So that's been a pleasant surprise. And as Apple is ever very tight-lipped with with how the product is going, how many subscribers they've brought in. So I I would say that on a on a financial level, it has a long way to go. You're probably aware that the model is that Apple charges a, a subscriber to News Plus £10 a month, 9 a month, and they take 50% of that and the remainder is shared between all of the publishers in the Apple News ecosystem, which includes a very large number of magazines. 
according to how much time readers spend with their content. So the challenge within Apple is, you know, it's it's kind of twofold and it, it definitely takes a bit of trial and error to get it right. So on the one hand, you're trying to put content into that product that won't cannibalize your own subscriber base because the price point is different to you know the, that of uh, a direct time subscription and yet you need to put both a sufficiently large volume and sufficiently good quality so that you can maximize your share of the readership within apple news so that it actually becomes a meaningful revenue stream for you and getting those two to sit comfortably together has been the test for us and it takes a while. And, you know, I think we were very cautious initially. And the, you know, the content that we put in was probably not our most valuable content. And we have evolved that over the six months. But it is always by take a deep breath, you know, let's put some more in. Let's put some more of the more valuable content in the comment, the analysis, some of the magazine content and, you know, see what happens. But we have not damaged the subscriber base in any way, and hopefully that continues. But nor would I say it has turned into a meaningful, like a material revenue stream for us. To me, success would be that you can have a direct subscriber base that is happily coexisting with an off-platform reader base, but where that off-platform base is generating you some decent revenue. And we're, we're, we're definitely not there yet. But it's no secret that you have kind of a sweetheart deal, right? I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to be in the know to know that every other publisher needs to publish their entire product on Apple News Plus. There's no kind of picking and choosing, and yet you seem to have the luxury of being able to say what goes in and what doesn't go in. So you have a slightly different relationship with Apple to the rest of the publishers on the platform, don't you? Well, it's it's not so much that, but it's more about how it's surfaced to people and how discoverable it is and how, you know, just how to navigate around it within the Apple product. So it's 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 not necessarily about withholding content, but there are ways of managing what goes in. And Apple has a way to go to get the reading experience within that product to become anything like the beautifully curated reader experience that most news publishers have created within their own apps. Yeah. I think what's really interesting, I mean, without kind of dragging up the past, thinking about Alicia, which was this project that we were working on. Yeah, which was how I met you. Yeah, back in 2009, which, you know, for the people who don't know, listening to this was was going to create something very similar to what Apple News has become, but, you know, a decade earlier. Even back then, the big fear from a lot of the publishers we spoke to was this cannibalization fear that they were going to lose subscribers to a lower priced product. Yeah. Um, Cause we're, we're seeing this with other publishers as well right now, not just with Apple news, but, but this phenomenon where you create a new product and it's an entirely new audience who pick it up. It's brilliant, right? Because it's just creating this whole new set of people who are consuming the product while still maintaining the flagship product intact. Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, one of the beautiful things about the reader behavior with news is that certain titles just engender huge loyalty. And you will know this, there, there is a whole group of people whose parents read the Times who will only read the Times, who will only subscribe to the Times. And frankly, you'd, you'd, you'd have to go a long way to persuade them not to subscribe. And they are the most loyal subscribers and and we love them 
then there's a group of people who who really like the Times, but will also read other titles, you know, or they'll dip in and out of other titles. Their main loyalty is to the Times, but it's not exclusive. And so you have a challenge as to how you how you maximize their engagement with you and your content and, and you persuade them to subscribe to you and you continue to give them an experience that they that they love. But they are, I mean, we know, for example, that the majority of our readers read at least three or four other titles or they, they will dip in and out of three other four other titles, including, you know, the BBC and, and other news publishers. So having an exclusive relationship with people or, or setting up a business model that's based on having an exclusive relationship with readers, I think increasingly is really going to limit your audience. And so I think you have to try to create both products and price points that recognize that. You know, I don't I don't read the Times exclusively. I read any number of, of titles, including, you know, non-daily news publishers like The Economist and The Spectator, The Week, and, you know, as well as I look at The Guardian. And, okay, we're right in the heart of, of Newsland, so we probably read a bit more news than the average person. But but I think I, I think a couple of things. Firstly, expecting people to be exclusive to you is, is not the right way to go about creating a customer proposition on a product and a price. But also, I think these Uber subscriptions that means you can, you know, you can put down the Times and then pick up the Telegraph and then you finish reading the Telegraph and you read the FJ. You know, people don't read like that either. You know, I think where people do read multiple publications, they're following a specific topic through and they want different takes on on a specific topic. And I think that's where aggregators are really interesting because that is what they do. You know, they will have three or four different publishers takes on either an event or, you know, a trend. And I think that people do quite like reading like that. And there are lessons for publishers in the way that publishers could come together to recreate that. Yeah. Um, well, particularly now. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've done this the perfect example where people are just clamoring for content, right? And they will go to so many sources. Yes, but you know we've we've seen it over the last few years. You know, I would say probably starting with the Brexit vote. You know, where you want to know what the multi sides of that argument are. So very few people were just reading one source of of news on Brexit, and then that followed through into Trump, and that's given us years and years of <laughs> of entertaining, but but also very different sides on that on that as well. You know, if you take the New York Times as as one extreme, and and sites like the Bulwark, for example, in the US, and then you come over here, and and it is a more I think we have a more nuanced take on. US politics than some of their own titles. So one of one phenomenon that we've seen here is is a real growth in our international audience primarily coming from the US because they want a British take on their politics finding that you know particularly where Trump is concerned their own news publishers have become very polarized. And so I think having the freedom to explore how you create different products that could be based on not just your own view, but how you would create something that brings in other titles and presents this sort of bundled content to readers is something that I've been trying to push. And that started with Alicia, but I think it's evolved. It's evolved a little bit since then. I mean, to to what extent in this day and age, because it's a long time since I was there, do 
the journal and the Times collaborate? Is there any editorial collaboration between the titles? Uh, editorially, no, not really. Um, but from a marketing and bundling point of view, absolutely, there is. We do, we do sell both together, you know, and I, and and there's there undoubtedly is a is a market for that. Editorially, I think it's it's harder, you know. The, undoubtedly, the editors talk, but editorial independence, as you well know, is 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 one of the sacred cows. But I think on the on the marketing side, there are many opportunities, and we need to create more of them, you know. And 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 it can't just be with News Corp own titles. I mean, I I would be all for. Uh, creating, I think, probably topic-related bundles with other UK titles as well. It just is a bit more sensitive, particularly given some of the historical relationships that I've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, so while we're on the UK, um, it'd be interesting just to, because this is kind of, it's, it feels like it's it's happened now, the VAT story. Mm. I guess just a few months ago, it just kind of reared its head with news appealing, well, no, taking HMRC to court and, and winning. Yeah. And then suddenly it becoming part of the budget this year. That, that, were you involved in the, in those discussions at all? Our, only only on the margin. Our our brilliant legal and Times editorial teams were the ones that, that led it. Um, but the budget actually went further than I think anybody was expecting in that it included books in this ruling as well, which, you know, hadn't been part of our case. Right. But I think, you know, it's a real break for, for publishers. I think for, for book publishers here, it will really help in the battle against Amazon. And obviously for newspapers, it helps to change, you know, some of the um, some of the digital economics. You can imagine just taking it a step further. So obviously the ruling is around digital editions. It's very clear it has to be an edition. Yeah. Why not just news? Why why does news that you deliver beyond the, the confines of an edition have to be subject to VAT? I mean, at, at the point at which now it's digital and it's packaged up into a bundle and therefore you don't have to pay, pay VAT, as soon as you unbundle it, you pay that on it. it it's, that now starts to seem a little bit illogical. Do we go further now? Is that the next step? Possibly it's the next step. I mean, the basis of the original complaint had been that the newspaper itself is zero rated for VAT. Yeah. And yet it's it's direct replica digitally is not. And so that was a relatively easy case to bring. And it was the same on, on books and ebooks. And so, and so it wasn't necessarily on the basis that this is news and you know the sun's website which is updated constantly for example is not an addition but probably uh, you would have thought the vat ruling back in the day decades ago was because it was news i mean there wasn't uh, then the only way of delivering news was an addition yes yes absolutely and and the newspaper was the format in which news was put out back in the day yeah so i would i would very much hope that it does evolve but the basis of the case was you take a print format and you take a digital format of an identical product and you shouldn't be treating the two differently. Yeah. And so are, are the legal teams now lobbying for the next for the next step? Um, I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> One would imagine you, you might be. It would seem to be a reasonable fight to fight, wouldn't it, right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. It should come. All right. Okay. Well, moving on. Actually, do you know what I did want to talk about, actually? And I, it's a bit of a, I'm taking a little step back, actually, was back to wireless. Oh, right. Okay. Because it's a really interesting business. And it's clearly a, a sector that's 
doing really well right now. Yeah. And one thing in particular I wanted to ask you about is Chris Evans' breakfast show and how that's doing. And if you could, just for the sake of people listening, explain the the business model behind the breakfast show. Yeah. So Chris had been doing the breakfast show on the BBC and had an absolutely enormous audience of close to 9 million people who listen to him every day. And we had, you know, a, a station that he had been associated with in the past, Virgin Radio, which at this point, you know, became Absolute Radio and then and then back to a new digital only Virgin Radio, which was part of the wireless group, which had a tiny listenership digitally of 350,000 people. And so part of our challenge, obviously, was was to grow that station. So Chris Evans was the biggest name in breakfast radio. And we wanted to bring him to, to Virgin Radio, back to Virgin Radio, and, and hopefully try to get as many of the 9 million people who listen to him every day as possible to, to move with him. The way in which audiences are measured is, is very, very outdated and, and of course, is the basis for, for, for selling advertising. And there's a huge lag between audience measurement and advertising uplift. So we wanted to, if we were going to bring Chris, we wanted to throw as much investment as we could behind, you know, both him and the team, the great studio build and putting the word out that he was now on, on Virgin. And, and we also had a, a challenge as to how to help people to discover these digital-only stations uh, and, and switch off their, their analog stations. So we thought about taking the show uh, ad, ad, ad break-free, um, just as they would find on the BBC. I mean, it was funny because having been on commercial radio uh, at Virgin in the past, I think, uh, you know, the audience growth that he saw when he went to the BBC was huge. And all of these 9 million people were used to having no advertising as, as part of their breakfast shows. So we thought, well, how, you know, how could that look? Clearly, we can't afford just to switch off advertising. So we thought about having the show sponsored and but really doing it in a way that that I think would be would be an amazing experience for the sponsor as well. And so what what could who could we bring into this that Chris could really talk about throughout the show in a way that sounded natural to the audience and I think it does narrow the field of potential sponsors but we were really lucky in in terms of Sky is the sponsor of the show Chris is a huge Sky fan anyway and watches any number of Sky shows and so he's always delighted to talk about you know what he's watching and what's on on Sky and you know he has come to know the management team at Sky very well and isn't above you know shouting at Stephen Van Royen over the airwaves to <laughs> fix this or change that or I didn't like the ending in this particular program they <laughs> need to do something about it uh, and 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 so we we took we took him and we brought him Chris and the team over and we made the show at break free and Chris talks about the content a lot and I think it it's a you know he's managed to create an amazing show and yet to the listener they don't they don't listen to uh, to interrupt that yeah it's an incredible model so we have we've we have had a great growth in audience you know we're very happy with it but we'll just continue to push for more the the DAB challenge I think is is a difficult one I would say has certainly 
just naturally inhibited the extent of growth. It takes a while to change people's behavior. And a bit like newspaper titles, you know, people have a real loyalty to their station. And even if you lose your breakfast presenter, there are many people who will stay with the replacement. Yeah. So given, so the way I heard him describe it is that there's no, there's no KPIs. There's no, like, he doesn't have to do like four mentions an hour or anything like that. He just kind of builds it into, he kind of, he threads discussion about Sky into the conversation. And if it's, if there's something relevant, say he says it. And if there isn't, he doesn't. Is that working? And he's, I mean, he's such a professional, you know, because he, obviously we need to keep Sky happy. And a challenge in the early days was Chris would want to talk as much about what he was watching on Netflix as what he was watching on Sky, which, you know, which we needed to manage. But he, because he is so authentic, and I think it's why he's so good is is because he's so authentic to himself, you know, and he he talks about, he talks about all of his you know, natural lifestyle. He talk, He has talked about how he's given up his phone, how he loves running, how much he loves reading, how, you know, he likes to meditate. And I think to, to force a sponsor on him that, that he didn't have an affinity for would just not work at all. Um, and, and so a big part of the sponsor's selection involves Chris himself because he needs to, he needs to like the, the company and like the product and be prepared to to talk about it on air in a way that just doesn't sound completely forced. I've got another question, actually. Uh, well, on the radio thing, and I don't know how much you can talk about this, actually, but can you tell us anything about Times Radio yet? Uh, I, I, I can tell you some things. I mean, what can I tell you? Uh, I think we have a really strong lineup of talent and presenters John Pienaar, obviously, is, has been the, the flagship hire, which we're all really excited by. But we have others, and we are probably weeks away from announcing some of them. We're just, you know, finalizing some contracts now. I think the, the, the bugger has been the timing, really. You know, we, we were planning to launch yeah. um, and hoping to launch um, in the next month or so. But there are challenges to launching a radio station when the entire lineup is new and where production teams haven't met each other. And it might sound slightly stilted on air. I mean, I've been astonished about how our radio stations have been able to continue to broadcast at this time. You know, the, and, and people have just been so amazing. I mean, Chris, Chris Evans, for example, and his team present the show every morning from his boat um, we have we've set you know many of the djs up with just computer kits so they can broadcast from home christian williams at the weekend sent me a screenshot of, of his setup at home he said i'm broadcasting from my cupboard and you could see his little setup and yet they sound amazing on air and the guys at talk sport you know you have a you have a 24 7 sport dedicated radio station in a world of no sport and they've been so creative and innovative and have not just stayed on air but have actually increased their audience during this time as have talk radio i mean they have just really really um pulled out all the stops and have been superb uh but 
you know, part of the reason they've been able to do that is that you've got some very tightly knit production teams and and talent and the production team know each other very well. And that's slightly more challenging when you're launching something that is entirely new, where we're bringing presenters in from outside of New UK and also how it how they then fit with the Times brand. So, it, I mean, it's it's a tricky launch. We will absolutely try and get it to air as quickly as we can. But I think we would prefer to defer it slightly if we felt that the people not being familiar with each other's working practices and not familiar with each other would compromise the output. We won't do that. And is it going to be, is, well, is, is the commercial model, is it going to be ad break or sponsorship? A bit of both. Ideally, ad break free. We're working on it. You know, I think we're so pleased with the way that the the Virgin model has worked and the listener feedback has been so positive that I think that's got to be the aim is to, is to keep it ad break free. And I think that also fits quite well with the times as a brand. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we will, we'll get there. I'm hugely excited by it as a challenger to radio Four, you know, which I think is, is, is brilliant in parts, but has its, has its challenges. Um, and LBC, which, you know, also has is brilliant in parts, but has its challenges. I think this will fit beautifully alongside the Times as an entirely new concept that I think, you know, we've had so much feedback from potential listeners about how prepared they would be to listen to it and how looking forward they are to having, you know, something new like this to listen to. I think I think it'd be great. That's interesting. And, and so in a world where every news media publisher is is doing a lot of podcast content and building these kind of these new business models around podcasts how do you so as the times how how do you balance that a radio station and yet i'm guessing there'll still be podcast output as well will that yes uh we're not the biggest producers of podcasts in volume terms anyway but i think that they are just you know they they can i mean for most radio stations podcasts and the and the output just happily sit alongside each other and you know people consume them as 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 they want to i, I mean i think you and i have i've been completely bowled over by podcasts i absolutely love the medium you know and I, <laughs> my, my good running for my, well my spotify you know lists have changed and i can't remember the last time i listened to music now on a run i'm pretty much podcast through and through and i just i just love the condensed format but i i don't necessarily think that they get in the way of radio listening i mean you you go to them in two different moods i would say and and i i think that's the spirit in which we are we're coming at this is that there there is an audience for live radio those people will absolutely listen to podcasts as well, but one doesn't come at the expense of the other. Will they share production facilities, that sort of stuff? Oh, they do. Yeah, I mean, we do already. I mean, we we, we invested a lot of money in studios in, in our building for all of the radio stations and for podcast production. So, yes, yes, they will, but it'll, it'll be fine. And, you know, we already put out short form clips of all of our radio shows anyway and podcasts you could argue are just an extension of that and with all of these things I think there is an awful lot of because podcasts are so new you know there's been a lot of trial and error and learning and this war I mean I think one of the things that has taken people by surprise is 
the amount of time that people are prepared to spend with a podcast. You know, when they first started, they were sort of 10 to 15 minutes long, weren't they? And there was real nervousness about, oh, will people listen for 10 whole minutes? And now, you know, you're listening for like an hour and a half. (laughs) Well, this one's going to be 45 minutes by the looks of it. (laughs) So, so. You know, I think we will just evolve depending on what we see people liking and what they're responding to and what they're downloading. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll adapt. Yeah. yeah. You know, Wondery, I have been talking about internally at News Corp as having probably one of the best, if not the best, stable of podcasts. And they have set up probably, you know, I mean, the challenge everybody has with podcasts is how you make money out of them. Yeah. And yeah. Their, their series, so if you remember going back to some of the very early serialized podcasts, they produced Dirty John and Dr. Death. Oh, yes. They were in, in a conjunction with the LA Times. And they've had such a successful run of these serialized podcasts that they will now only put a podcast out if they think it is worthy of a television series as well. So so uh, Dirty John wow. has been turned into a Netflix miniseries. I saw um, it. I loved it. Well, and they, the follow-up is, you know, this new series on Netflix that absolutely everybody is talking about, the Tiger. Oh, the Tiger one. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that started li- out in life as a, as a wondery podcast. <laughs> Have you watched it? I've seen the first two episodes. I, I, I mean, I'm going to have to watch it all, aren't I? Because it seems like one has to. Well, you possibly are. So, so I, I watched the first two with my kids who are 14 and 11, and they hated it so much they have refused to watch anymore. <laughs> Just kind of on their side, really. I'm, I'm, yeah. There's, there's no one on there I'm rooting for whatsoever. No, no, they are. It, they are really the dregs, aren't they? <laughs> they really are the worst of humanity. But I'm just getting to the interesting part about, you know, how he's hiring a hitman to have this animal rights activist killed. <laughs> and I can't watch it because they just review. <laughs> Let's see how it plays out. I might have to resort to the podcast only. So I got one. I got one last worky question, which is a bit of a it's a bit of a stock question. But I'm I'm really interested to know, like uh, the present situation aside, because that's kind of skewing everything. What what are the big plans for for News UK over the next twelve months? Well, I think the past couple of weeks have changed everything. Really, I think pre-corona we had been looking at at new things and video in particular. And we had some really exciting plans for for video, which I think we we will still see if it's if it's viable. And I think you know the brilliant part of News Corp is that for the right idea, the Murdoch family are generally prepared to back something, even in really difficult times like the present one. But I think you know we we now need to slightly focus on how consumers' behaviour is changing and what elements of that change I think are durable and will be sustained once all of the you know the lockdowns have been lifted and the world I think the world will go back to to being what it was but I think there are some changes that are likely to last and I think over the course of the next 18 months until we have a vaccine or at least a, a very well proven cure i think people will be wary of large crowds and so i think events businesses will need to evolve 
you know, sport will need to evolve or at least, you know, think about how, how it's how it's performed and, and what sort of, you know, audiences there are. Um, and, and so I think the challenge for us now is to try to figure out what elements of these. I mean, the big switch we've seen is out of print readership and into digital. How sustainable is that? I think probably probably very and how do we how do we take that and you know capitalize on it in a way that both sustains and grows the business and I think that that is the very pressing challenge now but I don't think it's a challenge that will go away anytime soon and it was there before but there's been such an accelerated change in reader behavior that you know we need to we need to adapt our newsrooms we need to adapt the way we source news and the way we put content out to you know to to meet readers requirements in a digital world which are different to a print world um i think on you know on the radio stations the 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 great role that they have played is being companions to people at home and so how do you keep that and you know and 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 grow your audiences at the same time and grow the digital world of of audio to encompass everything from you know adding video to your podcast adding video to your to your digital radio stations you know what what is it that we can do to to really create a great digital world around what was once a traditional radio station and i think you know there there is a lot to be done in the world of video particularly you know the bbc license fee is under review i mean i think that that creates such a, a different dynamic for this country where i think a lot of people accept that by paying the license fee it ties you into the world of broadcast television you know if that link is broken what happens to oh, over the top versus versus linear broadcast i think is phenomenally interesting and for us it it's an area that was of interest even before the coronavirus but i think we will we will look to really try and try and do something exciting there so there's there's loads to do but there is very definitely very definitely a short term i challenge. suspect james is very happy about the bbc potentially changing the whole model and the license fee going away i would imagine he'd love that yes he, he definitely will look i think you know i think we we have a unique challenge in this country which is we have some we have some very strong public service broadcasters, but we also have the likes of Sky, for example, who do a huge amount now that would fit into the original remit of a PSB. You know, they provide they provide independent news, for example. They provide a huge amount of programming from British-based producers and filmmakers and content providers and, and a lot of the original remit of the PSBs was exactly that. And so I think, look, the, the whole landscape needs to change anyway. And I think the, the regulators here have a real challenge about how they protect the good elements, but open open the PSBs up to the competition that I think they've been shielded from to date. There's an immense amount to look forward to. We just need to get through this very challenging time now. We've been talking for over an hour. So I think we probably have to draw this to a close. So I'm just going to say thank you so much. It was really good chatting. And actually, it kind of worked, right? We didn't need to be walking in Richmond Park. This 
this kind of worked with a glass of wine and, and a, a Zoom conversation. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm generally much happier sitting <laughs> down with wine <laughs> out in Richmond Park. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks so much for having me on. No, thank you. Thanks, Alison. Pleasure. Okay, so there it was. That was our, our second podcast. Hopefully you found it enjoyable. It was actually quite good recording it. I think we're probably going to be sticking to this format for some time to come, given that um, going for walks with friends in parks right now is somewhat frowned upon. But anyway, if you did enjoy the podcast, please do uh, subscribe to it, like it, share it with friends. You can find it, which I guess you already have done because you're listening to it on most podcast players, but also you can find it on our website, pugpig.com, where you can see lots of other interesting things uh, about what we're up to as a business. Anyway, thanks again for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.